0: Welcome to the latest edition of Patient No Longer. Now, today's particular episode of our new video podcast, I am particularly excited about. It's an incredible opportunity to have this conversation with our guest today, Dr. Steve Clasco of Jefferson Health. Hi, Steve.
1: Hi, it's great to be on with you.
0: Wonderful to have you here. Now, Steve Clasco is a known commodity in healthcare, and that's why we're excited to uh, to interview him today. He serves as president and CEO of Jefferson Health and Jefferson Thomas Jefferson University. So you've got both of those uh, both of those things going for you. His vision is to reimagine healthcare and higher education. Is if uh, reimagining healthcare wasn't hard enough, and uh, it's been exciting to follow Steve's career. So he's been with Jefferson since 2013. Uh, he was recently named a distinguished fellow of the World Economic Forum. He's going to co-chair the WEF Board of Stewards for the future of the digital economy and new value creation, which just sounds cool. He is the author of many books, uh, and he's a known leader that's uh, very innovative across the country. And he's the only healthcare leader I know of. And this might be the most impressive part, Brian. Who can lay claim to this. He has co-written a book with me, Ryan Donahue. I think you're the only one. So it is a pleasure to have you with us here, Steve, today. I just want to jump right in. Let's talk about patient No Longer. It's the namesake of this video podcast. It's the namesake of our recent book. What was the impetus for you jumping on board and and co-writing that with us?
1: I think, you know, Ryan, I think, and you and I talked about this, even even pre-pandemic, we we really wondered why healthcare was the only sector that escaped the, the, the consumer revolution, um, you know. And 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 I remember when you mentioned the World Economic Forum, I was at the World Economic Forum, and the CEO of one of the big financial institutions came to me. He said, "You know, 40 years ago, the two sectors that had totally been non-consumers were were, were banking and healthcare." And they stopped. He said, "Now you're alone." And I think the cool thing about patient no longer beyond the title. I think what I loved writing with you, first of all, it was really taking both style and substance. In other words, what's going to be the patients and, and consumers having the, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore moment. And I think what, what, what we did together incredibly well is then start to look at, well, why that is, what, why has healthcare escaped that? And more importantly, what, what we can do about it. So I think, you know, to me, I'll give you sort of what, what started my journey on this, sure. is that... Um, when I went to Wharton in 1994, uh, one of my mentors was a guy named Bill Kissick. He had written a book in 1994 called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. Sound familiar? We could, we could yes. do that book today. Um, and he was the first one to talk about that iron triangle of access, quality, and cost and you know, added patient experience in there. He said, if, if, if you increase one angle, you got to decrease another you know, isosceles triangles, this ninth grade geometry, unless you're willing to disrupt the system and disruption is painful to somebody. He said, if anybody ever tells you you're going to increase access, increase quality and decrease cost, and it's not going to be painful, they're not telling the truth. So think about healthcare policy for the last 12 years. President Obama said, good news, the Affordable Care Act will increase access, increase quality and decrease costs, and it won't be painful. That was a quote. That's just not true. might've been inadvertent, but not true. (laughs) President Trump said, I think it's gonna be fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, and huge. And it was none of those four things. So so the simple fact is we haven't been willing to do anything other than give people access to a fundamentally broken, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable healthcare system. And it's gonna change and everybody wonders what the Amazon moment is. And I think that what, your book, the book that you and I had the honor to write together, is starting to create that future of what it could look like when patients and people are leading, are leading the system. Just like people now lead the shopping experience, people now lead their travel experience, people uh, now lead their investing experience. And you look at where everything else is going to become even more More consumer That Vanguard made it so that anybody can invest in a stock. Robinhood might have taken it a little too far, but Vanguard did that. The iPhone democratized, democratized literally communication. We need to figure out how to democratize health.
0: Well, I think it's great the way you put it, and we know you've been fighting for a long time. You know, we let's stick with the Amazon moment. So I've had the pleasure of of sharing the stage with you at the Governance Institute. And there was a question I would always roll out to CEOs and boards. We would say to consumers through our market insight survey, which powered a lot of the book, we would say, listen, we get it. Healthcare's broken, right? It's a mess, as you would say, and it needs to be fixed. What company could come from outside of healthcare? And fix it. Can't name a healthcare company, can't name Jefferson Health, can't name Mayo, can't name anybody like that. Gotta be outside of healthcare. And the number one answer when we first asked it in 2013 and every year since was Amazon.com. That only got more popular during COVID. And you'd get you'd get board members who would kind of fold their arms and you'd get CEOs saying, We're not, we're not Amazon, right? And sure, we get it, right? It's the whole healthcare is different defense. And yet consumers were saying, we need healthcare to be more like Amazon. So when you're put in between those situations, folded arms on one side and consumers on the other saying, please change for our sake, what works for you in that situation to try to change minds?
1: So, so first of all, look, I think saying we need to be like Amazon is a little bit like Bernie Sanders saying Medicare for all. Sure. You know, it's, it's like real simple, like, I, and, and I tell everybody, you know, pandemic proved that Bernie Sanders was 100% right about the problem of health care in America, and the pandemic proved that it was 100% wrong about the solution. <laughs> like, he, he gets an A for, you know, uh, health care is fragmented, expensive, corporate-driven, sick care-driven, etc. Good, you get an A for that. He gets an F for, hey, look, we'll just let the states and the federal government work together to figure it out. I think we worked, we're, so, so like, look, Amazon isn't going to, Amazon isn't going to be the answer. Right. The the week after, I don't, I'm not sure if you remember this, but the week after um, uh, Haven got started, and Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire got together, and they hired Atul Gawande. He said, you know, in between operating on people's brains and writing articles for the for you know New Yorker and and the other stuff I'm doing with the government, in between all that, I'm going to transform healthcare. It was Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire? And remember, all the stocks went down, and you know, yep. like you know, and and. And I gave a governance to talk like two weeks afterwards. And, and somebody said, Dr. clasco I can't believe you didn't bring up, you know, Haven. Like, aren't you worried? And I said, well, you know, Haven is like the Loch Ness monster. If I ever saw it, I'd probably be worried, but I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. And, and you know, you look at Google, Amazon, Apple, even during the pandemic, you know, they didn't really do as much as you'd think. And some of that is because they're not nimble enough. They they might've been 20 years ago, but they're not nimble enough today to be able to do that. So what I tell people is I want to be Target and Walmart. And this is what I mean by that. When, you know, when Amazon disrupted that industry, there were three tacks you could have taken. You could have said, oh my God, nobody's ever going to a store again. And you think about things like Circuit City, the try, oh, we got to be all E and they couldn't compete with Amazon. There are those things, Sears and pennies, that said, what a stupid fad. You know, that won't last very long. And they're Sears and pennies. Target and Walmart said, hey, we're damn good at what we do. But you know what? This is another vehicle to get our product closer to the home. So in one case, they bought an e-company. In another case, they developed it. So what what, what I say is, look, I have 18 hospitals. Um, You know, we have probably the best pancreatic cancer surgeon in the country. God forbid, if somebody has pancreatic cancer, they, they wanna to come to Jefferson. They don't care how big our TV is. They don't care what our app is. They probably don't even care you know, how nice um, uh, you know, the doctor is. They know that they're gonna live in another couple of years based on, on outcomes. Okay, but there's 98% of people in, in Philadelphia that are not patients. They're people that wanna be able to thrive without diabetes, Congestive heart failure, whatever, getting away. We can't help but treat them like patients. That's really the theme of our book. I don't want to keep people from buying the book, but I just basically told you what you're going to read in the book. Um, you know, so so what we have we, we have taken a huge approach. So the one thing I, I do take from Amazon is consumer segmentation, and I know we talk about that a little bit in the book, Ryan. But you know, it always makes me laugh when I go, whether it's in Philadelphia or, or somewhere in city, I see. Pleasantville Health System, we are patient-centered. <laughs> and I think, like, are you patient-centered for a 65-year-old with an order ring and an Apple Watch, or for a 26-year-old disengaged person, or a 75-year-old with cancer? Because Amazon is, is, is consumer-centered, and they have 18,287 types of us, right? You know, uh, you know, they know more about me than me. You know, so, you know, let's assume hypothetically that I was into Star Trek. I'm going to know exactly when the new Picard comes out, you know, yeah. whereas, you know, you might, you might not. So, so we need to become a lot more like this. I, I will know we've succeeded and patient no longer. When I no longer see a commercial on like Morning Joe or Fox and Friends. That somebody being diagnosed with cancer, thirty-second commercial, walking into X, Y, and Z NCI Cancer Center, and walking out, and they're smiling and frolicking in the weeds with their grandkids. That's not reality, and that's 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 how we look at at healthcare consumerism, and it's just not. So, so I think I think for me, I can learn a little bit from everybody, but our stock and trade at Jefferson has been, you know, and and. As you know, I wrote another book that, uh, uh, this, this year um, that, that started out, what if a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a CEO of 196-year-old academic medical center walked into a bar, got married, and had a kid? What would that kid look like? So for us, it's how do we bring that VC world, whether it's, um, whether it's Microsoft or whether it's General Catalyst or Andreessen, with the traditional mission-driven healthcare ecosystem and bring them together instead of either or.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting perspective there. And I think a lot of your peers would say it's no longer an, an either or type of conversation, but it's a, but it's a both and, but in terms of time and resources, energy, people, uh, all those things that, that you would want to add to the and, then you know, that can become challenging in terms of, you know, where to, where to focus, where do you prioritize, how do you invest? Because we hear it's really easy it's sort of black box thinking, but it's really easy to hear about uh, data supporting information that would say how frustrated consumers are with you and how disconnected we are from all this and that. And, and, and we, I mean, we've already been talking about it for 10 minutes, right? So I think consumers are going to give healthcare, not a hall pass completely, but they're going to be okay with more incremental improvements and incremental changes. So, you know, rather than a wholesale change and Amazon rip replace this, the brick and mortar store for an online catalog what what in your estimation steve are are the things that that we should the healthcare should be looking to first if we're going to make a couple of incremental changes what are going to be most meaningful impactful that could actually be done right that aren't so big that that is going to be difficult for the regular health system to wrestle down
1: yeah so so i guess you know look i think um i'm a little bit of a no limits guy so i'm gonna have trouble thinking incrementally but i think that the um the, the real place where, where the wow is, is in, in two different areas. One is in chronic diseases and, and, and health assurance because they're pretty much curable. And those patients, like I said, they don't want to get... If you have diabetes, you don't wake up in the morning and say, today I am a diabetic patient. What you'd like to do is wake up in the morning and say, boy, I'd love to you know be me today and thrive without, without having to think a lot about my diabetes. When Hey, Montanesia, you know who, who had invested in Airbnb and Stripe and Warby Parker—all things that you know took traditional. Hey, if you want to build a bigger hotel chain than Marriott, you have to build bigger, or better hotels. I said, how about if you build nothing and bring them together? Decided to get into healthcare and and you know, made the initial investment in Livongo. You know Livongo became an 18.4 billion dollar company with one simple premise that you know that that diabetics want to be a want to be able to not think of themselves as patients every day. And we can't help it. We say, you are a diabetic patient. The diabetic patient, here's when you come to the office. Here's when you come to the ER. Here's when you come to the hospital. Well, what about while I'm at home? Well, you're on your own when you're at home because you're a diabetic patient. You know, they said, no, you are a person that has diabetes. And the less you think about your diabetes and let us do it, great. And yeah, and, and we're going to make it so that you can be a patient half the time. So you're going to go. you to spend less time at the office, less time in the ER, less time at the hospital. So I think I think that um, one thing is in chronic diseases, and the second thing I think is in um, my specialty of um, of obstetrics, right? I mean, you know, because you've got twenty, you know, let's say young people. Let's start that way. But you know, twenty-eight-year-old person pregnancy that has been used to getting whatever she wants, when she wants it, where she wants it. Getting into this system, it's like they're on Mars. So I'll give you an example. We started, we started, a, we started a company, my, I, w- I met my wife on Match.com, right? And, um, and so we said, what if we do a Match.com for pregnant patients and, uh, and, 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 and obstetricians? Because when I was practicing, the way it would work is a 28-year-old would be late for a period, she'd go to her 64-year-old male primary care doc who would do a pregnancy test and said, congratulations, Mrs. Jones, you're pregnant, I'm sending you to my obstetrician, Dr. Glasgow." And she'd say, oh, thank you, Dr. Smith, he must be great. Now, I think you know, you guys are young, but you know a 28-year-old woman today for the most important thing in her life is not gonna say, oh, sure, 64-year-old guy, I'll go for the most important thing in my, in my life to the person that you play golf with or is in your system or your country club or whatever. No, she's gonna say, okay, thanks for the suggestion. I'm gonna go on TikTok. I'm gonna go on, you know, talk to friends, et cetera. So we created match.com, real, real simple. Um, Mrs. Jones, I live in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'd like a group within 20 miles of my house. I want a predominantly female group that'll accept my door. I work at Jefferson. The only day that they'll let me off is Friday. Um, oh, and I have in that the gold. And I don't want to spend more than $1,000 copay. Um, um, and, uh, and I'd like you to send me any information you have on your quality or C-section rate, etc. And by the way, you don't have to, but it's like Match.com. I didn't have to put my picture on, but there's sort of an assumption. If I didn't, there was probably a reason I didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when I go around the country and talk to people about that, obstetricians, it's so funny because half of them say, all right, I am done practicing that is the end of medicine as we know it you know that this is the last straw i'm getting out the other half say wow that is really cool Where, where do i sign up there's a huge age and gender difference as you'd expect between a and b and i don't think i have to say what the age and gender of a and b is but so to me i think i think we need some we need to to start to break the crack in the wall right you know um to, to make an allusion to Pink Floyd since I used to be a DJ. But, but I think the wall of, we know what's best for you, needs to, needs to change. I wrote an article um, that basically talked about, you know, things that, that we don't tell you in healthcare, but it started out with, if you have an appointment at eight o'clock and your doctor shows up at 8.45, 90% of the time you're gonna go, that's okay, Dr. Clasco, you must've had an emergency. And what I say in this article is that's true 12% of the time. The other 88% of the time, the doctor was at breakfast or the doctor was at Grand Rounds or the doctor was doing something else, but knew that he or she would get away with it. Right. You know, and, and what happened as soon as I wrote that article, I got killed. I mean, you know, you know doctor, how, how dare you write that article? I said, oh, I'm sorry. Is, like, is what I said not true? Because I practiced for 30 years. I'd love to know it's not true. Well, it's not that it's not true, but you shouldn't be saying it. So, 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 you know, the question becomes two things I think will start to happen. I think folks with chronic diseases that see alternatives will demand that. Getting back to Livongo, the reason that it's taken off is because people that were able to do that and not have to dip their thing in the urine, have to travel out to, you know, for an appointment to the ED said, well, went to their doctors Said, boy, why can't I do that? In my specialty of obstetrics, there's a company I'm working with that's doing remote patient monitoring. My, my daughter had a, a pregnancy during the pandemic and, you know, she needed non-stress tests three times a week. And um, she said, wait, dad, I have to go down to Jefferson, you know, three times a week, pay $35 to park, go to a place where there's a lot of sick people, go up in an elevator, you know, so somebody can slap a, a, a monitor on me, I'm staring at the ceiling for two hours and the nurse comes and tells me I'm okay. Isn't there a better way? Can I do that at home? Well, the fact is there hasn't been an alternative. And now there will be an alternative when this comes out. And then doctors that say, no, that's not good will start to basically say, well, what do you mean it's not good? Why isn't it good? My, 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 my friend's doctor did it and she was able to do, do that all three of them at home watching little fires everywhere. So I think you'll see, start to see that. Just like look, my parents' generation, my dad didn't want to use an ATM. I'm not trusting that machine, you know, to 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 take my money, you know, you know, take my card. So so I think we'll start to see it. Gradual, I think it'll be gradual as a whole, but not gradual in certain areas. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does so I think so. you'll start to see certain areas start to to, to, to really revolutionize, like, you know, like we start to see with telehealth and and, and and then I think, you know, eventually consumers will start to say, well, why can't you do it with this? And why can't you do it with that? And why do I have to go to the hospital for this?
2: Right, I, I think some, some of the biases you mentioned, some of them are around, I mean, there's all kinds that exist, but age age is an easy one, right? I uh, actually heard a, heard a physician speaking at a governance institute conference a, a few years ago and the it was topically, similar to what we're talking about today in terms of, I, you know, gosh, we're trying to move into some value-based system. Nobody really understands and all I really, you know, I understand volume, right? And, and and that's the best way to estimate my earnings and, you know, people want to access us in different ways different channels and, and this whole like match.com thing for, for, you know, matching physician and patients, that's very threatening. And so the, he, he wrapped up the speech by saying, listen, it could be worse. We could be younger. So <laughs> I thought that, that was a, was an interesting perspective sure. shift there. And just to note on the, on the, the consumer revolution in, in finance, uh, in the banking world, my father's a banker and has been for 45 years and, and he was hesitant to use electronic banking, right? Even though as uh, someone who, who had offered it and, and as, and it was a generational thing. And, and so even though he knew it was safe and everything it was very difficult to, to get somebody to lean into something that you don't have experience with or trust implicitly.
0: Yeah. And that lack of trust is huge. And so another thing I keep thinking about when I love the way that you say that, Steve, with the diabetes example, if you have diabetes, you know, as if the disease or ailment is more important than the person. And we know all the time that that's happening in healthcare. It's like they're getting painted with the scarlet letter, you know, whatever their disease is. And we talk about that early in the book, how Harvey Picker and Gene Picker through the Picker Institute really fought to say, listen, you've got to treat the person, not just the disease. And Harvey goes back to that example of back in World War II, when we were limited on what we could do for a patient and they might make it, they might not. We got to know them. And really all those advancements, all those innovations that we celebrate over over the decades in some ways pulled us further away from the patient. And the patient has felt that. We, in the book, we talk about how they feel like they're coming into a situation where you know, they're, they're in the maze, right? They don't know how they got there. They don't know where to go. They've got no one guiding them. Um, and all they want to do is have those walls, to use your wall analogy, to have those walls, not just cracked, but obliterated, right? Broken down so they can see a straight path to getting well.
1: So I just want you to know, Pickers Through the Patient's Eyes was my eye-opening moment. Okay. Because, you know, it really was so brilliant of, you know, putting the camera the way the patient was seeing it. You know, and hearing things like, oh, the heart is coming into the OR or the colon is coming into the R. ER. Not, not, you know, not Ryan, Ryan who, you know, who who just found out that he might have X, Y, and Z. It's 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 the colon. Oh, really? And you just picture this colon coming to the <laughs> ER, or you know, somebody standing over, you know. So yeah, I mean, that was such a brilliant um way of showing that, you know, we 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 think. Our, our mission, Every look, everybody goes into medicine for the right reasons, but we just don't realize how it's being, you know, how it's how it's coming off to the patients.
0: Well, and it's interesting because that that book is absolutely an ancestor to patient no longer. In fact, it was 25 years later when we asked ourselves, you know, Picker came out with that landmark work in the early 90s saying these are the things that have to change the eight dimensions of care that have to be established. And we went back and we we took fresh eyes. We talked about this years ago, Steve, and we said, Is there still a story there? What do we have to show for 25 years? And in the middle of that mark, we had HCAPS, right? Where we go live. And I remember that. You lived through that too. HCAPS was, it, it's out there for everyone to see, right? It's going to level the playing field, it's going to inform consumers. The, the C in H-caps stands for consumer, it's going to make a revolution happen. That was 12 years ago. so Brian, I want to kick it over to you on this sense what what do we have to show for that? I know we talk about in the book, but I want to hear from your perspective. HCaps has been around for 12 years dimensions of care for 25. How does that feel today?
2: I, I, we we that have seen the data that have been close to it we, we know that that's not an up and to the right type of type of number if we're looking at say for example those that are you know overall rating of care or would recommend uh, to friends and family. And, and it's not for lack of effort. It's not for lack of trying, right? The so much went into, uh, improving HCAP's performance. And there's still some hospitals today that are really wrapped around that axle. Right. And saying that this is how we're going to use this as a determinant of success for our organization. We're going to sort of benchmark against everybody else. We might fight for some increased value-based purchasing dollars, but, but this is it when in point of fact that's really it's a very important assessment and it's built around the right things around what's most important to the inpatient during and you know after an inpatient experience but then there's this whole you know 80 some 90% of your health system where most of your revenue comes from where most of the visits occur right. and and that's not being assessed in the same way that HCAps is and there's there's not that sort of leveling that that HCAps brought to the inpatient world and so i think that there's we're we're, we're making that transitional shift away from thinking that hcaps results are the end-all be-all when it comes to the patient experience or the human experience with your brand and trying to trying to stretch that out and, and think about that more longitudinally along the customer journey so that's i mean as a leader of a healthcare organization that's doing this for multiple hospitals you know what's your perspective there steve in terms of you know how do you sort of put a thumb on the patient experience and, and how would you define it as you try to think about it as as a, a much more you know protracted journey with your brand
1: I, look, I agree with your assessment that there's been a lot of effort and not a lot of outcome. And, and, and the way I like to put it is, um, there's a great Jason Kidd quote. Uh, you know, Jason Kidd was a point guard. He, he got traded to Dallas Mavericks. They were 24 or 52 in his press conference. He goes, you know, I am so excited. I'm going to turn this team around 360 degrees. And, you know, what happens is we get a lot of that in, you know, whether it's age caps or, you know. So I think it comes down to, to a couple of different things. I think one is, it comes down to leadership. You know, you know, the problem is that 95% of us, so I'm, I'm going to be running an 18 hospital system after this latest merger happens. So
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you, I think. But, um, um, you know, if you look at people running five to $10 billion academic medical centers, they tend to be, you know, between 65 and 70, they tend to have gotten their job either by being a really good clinician or doing really good research. And, you know, in in the old model. And, you know, and they've never been pushed, because every time the government or anybody says, you know, hey, we're going to start paying you based on age caps or whatever, you know, they can say, boy, I can totally change everything I do and something I'm not really good at, or hope it won't change that much. And they've been right, you know, just about 100% of the time. So, um, and, and, you know, so that really gets down to the major thing. And the, and the quote I like to use for that is the Upton Sinclair quote, it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. So, you know, look, you guys in your podcast talk about volume to value and Ron, you've been at, at governance institutes when I, you know, when I'll discuss say, Hey, good news. Well, it's volume to value, right? Yeah. Oh, value, value, value. Okay. Yes. I have 50 hospital CEOs. How, let's take a really low number. How? How many of you have 25 percent of your revenue i'm sure everyone will raise their hand it's totally based on value and not fee for service and you know maybe a couple hands go up so you know why is that you know i mean so the issue getting back to my you know nobody's had the profiles and courage whether it's government or providers or or anybody to do the things that we know that have to get done why do dermatologists make 10 times what family docs make okay why is that i mean you know, I mean, especially when we're asking family docs to be the quarterback of exactly the kind of system that you're, that you're, you're envisioning. Right. And, and my family docs say, Steve, it's great that you want me to be the quarterback of the ACO, but you're paying me like the kicker. You're paying your neurosurgeons and, and your cardiovascular surgeons and your dermatologists like the, like the quarterback. And, and they're right. So we know that. We know that the whole insurance model in this country is bizarre of getting 17 cents on the dollar to make sure that people pay for the care, get the care, and provide the care can't talk to each other. So we know that's bizarre, you you know, and while it's changing a little bit with Optum and United and CVS and Aetna, that's still the model, medical loss ratio, right? right? We know that you could not come in any planet with a more bizarre system of how we build people, right? So these are things that we know, and I'm on the board of a company that's trying to solve that, but we could have solved that a long time ago. My daughter with her pregnancy, her normal pregnancy, since she uses my house as her address, she's gotten 47 things from the insurer and the hospital. And, you know, you know I mean, the first one was that, you know, the, the 18 page, $100,000 thing, it said, oh my God, this is not a bill. Then why the heck did you send it to me if it's not a bill? So I, I bring that up because we haven't had the burning platform, despite what we say, to make those changes. And the reason I bring up, you know, the, we're, we're, the reason I bring up Amazon or, or Airbnb, that forced everybody else in the industry to do free shipping and that kind of thing. And until we until we get into that kind of mode, where hospitals are going to fail, or insurers are going to fail if they're not providing value, if they're not doing population health, et cetera, or unless we have what I've espoused a 9-11 commission for healthcare. I mean, if, if President Biden asked me, what's one thing you do? I would do what they did in the, after 9-11. After the Democrats got done blaming the Republicans, Republicans got done blaming the Democrats. what did they say? We failed to keep this country safe. Let's get some really smart people, some disruptors from people from different industries and see how we keep the, 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 the country secure. We'll put them under the radar for six months and come back to us. Now, they didn't do everything, but it was really good. Can you imagine what it would be if you had you know, a Senator Casey and a Senator Blunt get up there and say, hey, you know what? We have failed to really break the access, quality, cost, and, and, and user experience square. Um, and both, both parties have failed. So we're gonna get people like, you know, Ryan Donahue and, you know, um, you know from, from every part of, of the infrastructure, some people from the payer piece, some people from pharma, and really tell us how we can really solve the problem. What can you give in the office? to give everybody access to a different system. Here's just one fact. When the ACA got passed in in 2010, 2011, and you said, we gotta bring a dollar and a quarter of healthcare down to a dollar in order to give everybody access. What are the first stocks you would have sold? All your middleman stocks. (laughs) I better sell my United Healthcare stock, my Cigna stock. I also better sell my supply chain stocks, you know, pharma, you know, medical device companies. Why? Because in every other industry, where the dollar to core down to the dollar, the middleman got squeezed. Right. Well, other than maybe Apple and Tesla, those middleman stocks in healthcare were the best investments from the time the ACA went. So think about that. How can you possibly decrease cost, increase quality, while the middle has expanded to this without any outcome difference? Right. They just were able to decrease their medical loss ratios, which is how much can I get in and how little do I have to pay out?
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And it's incredible to watch. And I I love going back to the conference example you had of, you know, we're all talking about it. It's in every presentation the entire day. And yet when you get the actual people to raise their hand, which it kind of halfway goes up that they're doing it right. And there's this timidity and there's this uh, reason not to change. My favorite is when you're sitting in a board meeting and there's always that one board member, you know, who shoots down innovation by saying, but how do we get paid on this? And so we're going up against that. And it feels like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill with healthcare. But there's something else that came into the mix. And we talked about this as we were finishing the book about a year ago, a little something called COVID-19. So we actually, before we published the book, we wrote a forward on it. But in reality it wasn't like slapping the sticker on top it was a lot of our book was talking about you got to change these things because change is coming and it's yeah, we great. talked about
1: infecting the book with covid <laughs>
0: right was we talked well you know you, i think a lot of people probably added the covid forwards to the book right because you got to say uh and covid but we really we we wrote about it because there was the opportunity to say The front end is this, COVID validates all these other things we're talking about. And a lot of this is consumer-led. So I want to share one example from a presentation you gave last year. You talked about how five years ago when no one really cared that much, and certainly we're going to put up big dollars. Let's go to the access part of that triangle. Jeff Connect. So the telemedicine program you had, I think did about 100,000 visits in five years, which honestly is good enough for like a national gold star. And then in the first three months of the pandemic, It did another 100,000 visits in that short amount of time. So obviously COVID brought about some of these changes much faster. Our colleague Steve Kett often says the future got here a whole lot quicker because of COVID. So talk about that, Steve. I mean, obviously we won't see telemedicine continue at those rates, it's already dropped, but is there some hope if you're the consumer watching those few hands go up and saying, who's gonna help me in this industry? Is there some things around COVID that will stick?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's really a great question, and and you know, um, I always, and by the way, I think the cool thing about the book, the reason we didn't have to, you know, make a lot of changes to the book is because the whole book was about, you know, what needs to change that COVID just proved. So if you remember, mm-hmm. we reread it and said, is there anything we'd say now differently? And the answer was no. That's why we did the fourth But look, I think um, you put it well. COVID accelerated the stuff we already knew and made it, made it a bit more of a burn, burning platform. So when you look at the places that did well, and I'm gonna think of, in, in my world of healthcare providers, sure. there's only two, two groups of places that did okay during the, the pandemic that weren't insurers. Insurers had their best year ever. But um, one was folks that, that had a strategically aligned payer provider thing. So they really had a percentage of the premium. So they were able to literally you know take advantage of that. And the second were those that had diversified their portfolio to, to really, really, really invest in innovations and digital transformation, not just as a vendee, you know, and, and, and frankly, we were an example of the latter. Um, you know, uh, while, we, while we would have had $100 million net operating income if it wasn't for the pandemic, we go from July to July. So we got hit, you know, you know right in the middle of our year, we end up with a $290 million loss. We have about $50 million on the bottom line of innovations, including wearables that we created and you know investments in American well and some of the other things that we've just talked about. So I think, I think to me, the pandemic proved that you have to be in percentage premium. You can't, can't, can't just exist in a fee-for-service model anymore. Uh, whether the government tells you you have to or not, you have to either own or or be part of a percentage breed model. And you have to diversify your portfolio so that when healthcare does go out to home, you've actually invested in those things instead of just creating 20 billion dollar companies where you're the where you're the thing. I don't ever want to go to hymns anymore and have 950 24-year-olds tell me how they're going to transform healthcare with their app. You know, we need to bring that together. So 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 for us that that's that's what it's been. I I worry a lot. About clawbacks, yeah. and 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 you know I mean I'll just say something that might not be the best thing to say, but I, but I, I had I had wished the President Biden, you know, would have you know brought somebody into DHHS that was in that world. Yeah. You know, um, you know, Becerra is, is is a fantastic individual, really smart, but he's you know Attorney General type thing, and and you know you you know so it's sort of you know the leader is what you're saying. So, so I didn't I didn't think they needed somebody to support Obamacare because that was going to get supported. They had the Senate and the Congress. You know, what w- would have sent a huge signal, you know, to have like an Anish Chopra type person, the chief technology officer for President Obama type person in there, because it would have sent a signal that we're all all in on that. If you look at the Minister of Health for the United Kingdom, it's a tech guy. <laughs> and 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 you know, he's really done a lot with the NHS. So so. I I think that what I worry about is, and we're already seeing it in, in places like Philadelphia, that you know, um, if we go back to we'll pay you forty nine dollars for a telehealth visit and three hundred fifty dollars if, if the patient sees you in your office, you know, what do you think is going to happen? You know, I can I can practice in in, in forty eight states, actually forty nine because I have a Florida license, in person, but I can only do telehealth in about fifteen states. Because each state medical society or whatever can say, I don't think I want Jefferson to, you know, to compete with us over here. So it was, your your dad, from the banking perspective, imagine when ATM started, if you said, All right, here's the scoop. You're gonna to have to get a different ATM card for every state with a different password. You know, I don't think people would have walked the travel lot would have walked around with 50 ATM cards. It would, you know, you know, so that but that's what telehealth's like. So so I think the answer is the answer is almost everything we've talked about. How bold is government willing to be that lets hospitals that don't get HCAP type stuff fail? You know, how bold are we willing to be to take some short-term losses to do things like telehealth? And I'm proud that Jefferson has done that in, in, in many situations. How bold are insurers willing to be to say that the gig of just being the middleman is up? You know, we got to create value. You know, how bold is our payers willing to be, whether it's the government or other payers, in totally reforming how we pay docs? You know, you know how bold are we willing to be to break the, some of the pharma lobby things that we have to pay retail for pharma for based on a 1970s mentality, that that's the only way research will get done, pre-China or Russia or South Korea, you know, you know, having the kind of dollars that they have. So I, I think that, that that's really, that, that's really the question, um, um, you know, so at Jefferson, what I can tell you is that we are all in with healthcare at any address. We have a four pillar model, the old math of academic and clinical in-person tuition and hospital revenue, the new math of innovation, strategic partnerships, and philanthropy. We've done the partnership with GC and, and, and others that actually we invest in each of these things. We're not just v- Vendees. On the telehealth thing that you mentioned, when we started out saying, good news, we had the largest specialty telehealth thing in the nation. I invested $40 million back in 2013. I mean, it was like when I went to the faculty and said, I'm going to take money from, you know, stuff you're doing to invest in telehealth. It was like that scene in Exorcist, you know, where the head went around 360 degrees. Like, are you
0: and, and you were brand new when you did that.
1: I was in was for three months, you know, so I was literally looking at, you know, I was I, talking about Amazon, I was, I was going to have to work at Amazon packing boxes. But, <laughs> but the fact is that, that, you know, when we first did it and we came up with a theory that 50% of our non trauma non patients, it wouldn't have to come to our expensive and efficient ED, they could, we could take care of them through either telehealth, urgent care and appointment the next day. What we recognize is if we just did it, we would go bankrupt because the payers were willing to pass $1,500 if somebody came to our ED based on the codes, whether they need to or not, an average about $89 the other way. So we started with our 32,000 employees. <laughs> we're on the payer, on the provider and the employer. That's why I said what I said about percentage of premium. We were able to do it. We saved about $7 million the first month with, with HCAP scores off the charts for unscheduled care because they, they weren't waiting five hours. And, and, and so, but how did we do it? Simple incentives. If you're an employee of Jefferson and you just show up to our ED and you get admitted, it's a $500 deductible and you pay part of your admission. If you go through Jeff Connect and we send you to the ED, zero deductible and you pay zero for your admission. So we drove that change and, and, you know, very, very, very few people did the $500 deductible. Now, if somebody did it, it was because, you know, they called an ambulance and obviously we, we waived it, you know, and we had some of those appeals, but people just got used to, well, you know, I sprained my ankle. I don't know if I need to be seen. I'm gonna go on Jeff Connect. And here's the second thing we did. Then we built an urgent care center and the nerve center for Jeff Connect, which is all ED docs, two blocks, from our academic medical center. It was a steakhouse, it was a lousy steakhouse, but it was a good urgent care center. And, and, and people said, well, why would you do that if you have one of the largest DRs? Why would you build an urgent care center two miles away? Because now we can go to Mrs. Jones at two o'clock in the morning when she gets on Jeff, Jeff Connect and say, you know what, I don't wanna do this through telehealth and I'm not comfortable seeing you tomorrow morning. Why don't you come in? But come into the urgent care center on 8th and Walnut instead of the hospital at 10th and Walnut. We'll be able to see you right away. And if you do need to be hospitalized, then we can, we can just send you right over, by the way, cost that's, you know, $50 versus, you know, $1,500 and a five hour wait. So, so to me, some of this is just logic of putting yourself in the patient's eyes, getting back to, you know, Picker's theories and saying, you know,
2: gosh, that's a better way to do it. I, I love the notion of, of bold by how bold, how bold do you want to be? How bold do we want to be as an industry? That's probably a word that even though it's full of positive connotation, probably makes some, some people shudder, right? Cause it, it is challenging. It's, it's, it's like gonna, disruption. Yeah. Right. Right. It just means inherently that you need to do something different because what you have already been doing isn't good enough. Right. So, uh, and then I, I also like the idea of large health systems, like, like Jefferson, Uh, Some of your peers around the country, you know, investing a lot in, in new technologies and expanding your venture arms and those types of things. So That's one way. One thing that popped up to me as you were describing sort of how the middle got, the middle got fatter and whiter, right? But, but outcomes didn't improve. This is one way certainly to affect that, right? If you're, you're not necessarily shrinking the middle, but you're making it more efficient potentially and, and. to the betterment of all Uh, I'm curious with your venture arm, you know, what, what types of technology and, um, I guess not all technology, what, what types of investments are you making now that that you think are going to, you know, have, have major impact in the, in the near term, just with regard to, I will keep it as local as consumerism. I know there, I mean, there's technologies all over the place with care delivery and, and efficiencies, but, but how about just with regard to patients through the patient size, consumerism, you know, what, what do you believe in right now that, that you're investing in?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I, I don't like to think of our arm as a as a venture arm, because I don't think we're good venture capitalists, <laughs> you know, just like, you know, they're not good Um, You know, there's people with a lot more money and a lot better at assessing what's a good investment than, than I am. Ours is more of a, uh, you know, our, our sort of secret sauce is a co-development innovation strategic partnership arm. That at The point that I'm going to Take our three million dollar three million patient encounters and move care closer to home and partner with a company. I want to be part of that because if I think it's good enough for us to partner with, my, my aha moment I won't name the company but was when I was at University of South Florida as a CEO, and we were the first person to work with this this sort of telehealthy type thing and uh, I personally you know helped them and we were their first customer, and I hadn't heard from the individual for about six months ago. Steve. I really wanna take you out for dinner. Uh, I said, "Why? Well, because I just want you to know you, know, you are our first customer, we couldn't have done it without you. We just had an IPO and I absolutely couldn't have done it without you and I couldn't have done it without, without USF. And I said, well, that better be a hell of a dinner because I just read that your IPO was a billion and a half dollars. So the answer to your question, just some of the things that, that, that we've partnered with and then invested in, there's a company called Strongline that actually um, actually started with an idea that our head of security had around nurse security. Again, you wanna think about something that's backward, you know, um, and this really, really took hold over COVID because of, you know, the mental health issues and that kind of thing. Patients in a, uh, nurses in a room or an ED bay or whatever with a, with a patient who gets violent and she's yelling out a code orange or she's, you know and then code orange, code orange, code orange. First of all, that accelerates the violence. Secondly, they got away from security. So we, we worked with a technology company and co-invested to create a little white thing on their thing that they press twice, GPS coordinated. Everybody around there says there's a problem in room 1102. So if a nurse or somebody else it's a you know big guy or whatever that that you know is in 1103, he runs right over. Meanwhile, security is immediately alerted without any noise or anything like that. Well, that's now at about you know 25 hospitals. We co-developed and partnered with a company called Ambulance, um, which is looking at because again our whole model is. How can Jefferson be health assurance and healthcare with no address? So they're an AI transportation type company. So, you know, make an internet appointment with Jefferson, would you like our transportation option? What differentiates it from an Uber is, you know, because it's tied into us, we know if you need oxygen, we know if you need somebody there, we, you know, we know what level of transportation you need. And we also know, you know, when the thing is done, when the appointment's done is you get a little text and, you know, we're waiting outside. Turns out as part of that, they ended up doing a rapid COVID test very early. We were already invested in them. And because of that, we became the COVID tester for the airport in Philadelphia with a partnership with an ambulance. So each of those things we're, you know, each of those things are we're looking at, at at some companies that are doing sort of lab tests at home. Again, if our goal is healthcare at any address and we see a company that's good enough for Jefferson to partner with, why wouldn't I invest in it? I mean, you know, it's gonna be a trillion dollars spent in digital transformation. And, you know, so one of the really cool things that happened is um, we merged a 196 year old academic medical center with a the number three fashion design university in the country. And, you know, the concept of design of the human experience, we have the first MD masters in design. But one of our most successful things this year was we, we took a carbonized hemp and, and created a t-shirt wearable that turned into an IPO called Ecofiber that, you know, now Nike and Under Armour, Apple, others are looking at. This could be the next door ring or whatever. So when you go to sleep, it'll automatically send in your continuous data. My car gets better care than I do, right? My car sends continuous signals out. So when I start it in the morning, it says, hey, Steve, while we were sleeping, my right front passenger tire got a little low. Before you go to Starbucks, could you fill me up? Meanwhile, I'm going to get a physical in two weeks. And Dr. Burkell is going to go, Steve, uh, on March 28th, your blood pressure is X, your, your EKG is Y, and your calcium score is Z. This is what you should do for the next 18 months. <laughs> That's asinine, right? I mean, think about all the technology. What do you mean it's what I should do for the next 18 months? Maybe it's my worst day. Maybe it's my best day. You know, maybe I'm gonna like start eating like crazy the day after this, you know, or maybe I'm gonna go on a diet. Or, you know, I mean, you know, it's like people that say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna floss for, for like two days before I go to the dentist, so he won't see, you know. I mean, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. So 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 the te- all the technology is there. What 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 we're moving toward and the things we're investing in are things where you're putting out continuous data, you're partnering with your virtual voice assistant that's helping you run your day, just like Avongo helps diabetics run their day, looks at chronic diseases with with people, not patients, and then makes it easier if you need to come into the hospital. And then we're investing $762 million in a a pavilion that's not a hospital, that we're calling the space station between home and the hospital. With the understanding that our our view of the future of hospitals is really 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 sick people you know people that need bone marrow transplants people that need icus etc That everything else will be at home or in things like the specialty care pavilion which will be literally you get in retinal scan you know we'll know everything about you um you know you won't even have to press a button on the elevator because the retinal scan will say oh you're going up to you know 410 That the different doctors will go to where you are as opposed to you have to go into different floors. We're partnering with companies around the globe. We're making it expandable so that when it opens in 2023, you know, we're all we're we're doing 2026 stuff. So we're partnering with companies. So to me, it's what's gonna be obvious 10 years from now, start doing it today. And the only caveat to that is you have to do it in a way that doesn't totally kill you in in, in today's society, right? So, so that gets back to the telehealth example.
0: So that was a great, I mean, that was just an incredible uh, portrait of the future. I had a question, I, our time is coming to a close. I had a question that I was going to ask about the future approach and working backwards. And you already got there, Steve. In fact, I have a book, just so you guys know, viewers will see this reader's uh, or listeners will know The Phantom Stethoscope. This is a book from last century where Steve talks about the future. He's been doing this for a while. And, and the best thing about you and getting to know you is you live it. You don't talk it, you live it. So I've got a question for you on that aspect. We're going to have viewers and listeners who aren't Steve Clasco, but they want to do some of the things that you do. They're just not always sure how. What is one piece of advice you'd give someone out there in the great sea of healthcare? That they could do. That's a little more like your vision for the future. How can they help you get there?
1: Yeah. So I I think I think what what I would suggest is the first thing I would suggest is get a uh, is is look at consumer segmentation. You know, take take your your patients wherever you are, and look at maybe start easy three groups. I want to you know group of millennials. I want a group of cancer patients. I want, and then I would really just like you do with your board, have them become your board for innovation. Hmm. You know, I, what I what I did when I first started this is I took people that were complaining about our consumer service and the ones that didn't write me threatening notes and block letters, but actually wrote cogent <laughs> cogent <laughs> notes that, you know, Dr. Clasco, you know, I have to tell you, you know, like, you know, I, I know you really don't don't want to hear this, but the service that I got was really, you know, and, and would, you know, go through it. I kept them and I actually created a, a patient advisory board of those people that had complained. And they were predominantly chronic condition people, people with cancer, people with diabetes that came in a lot. Right. And I viewed them frankly more important than my board of trustees. Then I, Then what I did was I got my people, my operators to understand what they were saying and then I started to, to to bring in some people, you know, if you will, consultants from the from the digital world to help. So I think any hospital could do that. It's I mean, if your hospital gets no complaints, then you probably don't need my advice. But um, look at people that weren't happy with their experience. Get them to get the, some of them together. Get your people together. Try to figure out what the root cause is, just like we do with quality. I guess the one thing I'd say is this, and I know we're running out of time. We've done a great job, I think, generally in this country around quality, around errors. Because we recognize that some of these were system errors that wasn't the individual's fault. Some of them were individual errors that weren't the system's fault. If we start to take that same model of zero defect units that we've tried to make of, I'm not going to do any more wrong limb surgery, and we've come so far in that. And we do that with, I'm not going to do... I'm going to take the equivalent to that is having a patient be unhappy with her care is the equivalent to a wrong limb because she couldn't get an appointment or or or, or she was waiting 20 minutes on the phone. Mm-hmm. Then I think then I think we could start in any hospital to start to do that root cause analysis, failure modes analysis, et cetera, and, and say, hey, you know, let's fix that.
0: I love that approach. I mean, that—that's you're singing to the choir and you know that, but I I really think for our viewers and listeners, it, it makes so much sense. And I love what you're saying about even things like consumer segmentation. You can look at them in a bubble as innovations, but they're also getting closer to the consumer, to the individual, to the patient. That's the mission of our book. Uh, we are out of time. We could talk to you all day, Steve. It's phenomenal uh, to listen to your ideas and to know that you're putting them into action. That's the most important part. And we thank you so much for joining the Patient No Longer podcast today.
1: Thanks. And hopefully, this is how you'll know you're successful. If a few years from now, we don't need a Patient No
0: Longer podcast.
1: You guys, you guys can all retire. Say, yep, we did it.
0: That's right. If we work
2: ourselves out of a job. That's a good, that's a good thing.
0: We'll know. We'll know we're doing the right thing. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate it.
1: Best to everybody at NRC.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Goodbye. (laughs)